Hi, and welcome to NARC, Narcissistic Abuse Recovery Collaborators, also known as NARC Troopers. If you like today's episode, please follow me at my website, NARC Troopers, where you will find a whole podcast channel with tons and tons of episodes like this one that explain narcissistic abuse and cluster B disorders, along with how to navigate the recovery following a relationship with one of these folks. And I also have articles that have been published on Medium, well over a hundred, approaching higher numbers of a hundred. And I also have a video vlog where um, that one is just sort of a freestyle thought for the day, message for the day kind of thing. A lot of it more based on my personal experience. But for the researched educational articles and podcasts that have little bits of personal stuff sprinkled in there, but they're mostly um, uh, informative, then that would be the podcast and articles. And the house where all of those things live is NARC Troopers, narctroopers.com. So today's topic is how to raise a narcissist. Well, that's not the kind of thing you Google because you want to know how and you want to do it. It's quite the opposite, probably, right? How not to raise a narcissist. You might want to Google that. There are myths about what is it to be a good man? What is it to be a bad girl? And a lot of times um, when we're raising children, especially girls, there's sort of a sexual and... um, sexualization and objectification of females in our world that certainly script them to interact with narcissists and people with antisocial personality disorder. And I'm going to refer to that as ASPD throughout this because that's a lot. It's a mouthful to say that every time. Um, it sort of prepares them and, and programs them to to do that, to get involved with these kinds of people. And, uh, you know, of course, there's female narcissists also, and female people with ASPD, although the majority, statistically speaking, are male. So let's take a look at this. Most people with narcissistic personality disorder are made, they're created, they're not born that way, like the people with ASPD. Sometimes the conditions overlap, and that's when you get some hybrid version called a narcopath. The narcopath is like a combination of a narcissist and either a sociopath or psychopath, or worst case scenario, it's like all three bundled up into one big bundle of joy. Um, Mental health professionals have long asserted that people with NPD are created by extreme trauma, abuse, or neglect in their early childhood, usually between the ages of four and eight. Now, that number can vary a little bit. It can be as young as three, um, as late as five, and on up to maybe seven, eight, or nine years old. In that little window of time, very formative years that pretty much programs you and gives you a script that you 
um, perform for the rest of your life. And things can happen that can go wrong during that time period that are going to be impactful and change the course of your life forever. So those are very critical years in child development. Well, I think there are more things at play that are contributing factors to the creation of a narcissist. There are cultural attitudes of family and society that play a large role in things like the sexualization, objectification, and marginalization of the females. And it shapes them into these one-dimensional objects that have one function, and that is to be used and discarded by the men that they love, and then they are quickly replaced with another. Now, also during that time period, as far as being sexualized and objectified and marginalized and all of that, it can happen to, to boys too, in the sense that, you know, they can be abused and traumatized and exploited in ways that just, um, you know, mess them up forever. They can't get over it because whatever it was, was so um, just horrific. So, um, this treatment of another human being, this mistreatment, it, it should evoke feelings of shame and remorse in, in whoever's guilty of, of these things. <clears throat> but I think that a lot of the time we're desynthesized to that. And, and we are living in a culture where everything is disposable. And that's just kind of... Um, the philosophy that's out there these days, it's a, it's like a disposable mate philosophy. Um, a person with those two types of cluster B disorder, they have no feelings. You know, bipolar and histrionic do have genuine feelings, but a narcissist or a person with antisocial, uh, sociopath, psychopath, they don't, they don't have real, authentic, genuine feelings at all. Uh, what feelings that they do have would be envy, contempt, frustration, uh, maybe depending on what kind they are, uh, they could become angry, that kind of thing. But as far as any healthy emotion, love, intimacy, remorse, guilt, um, anything that has to do with morals or conscience, it's just absent. It's, it's, absent. It's actually just not there. It's a void that is just doesn't exist. And they're going to try to compensate for that. So you need to know that too. A lot of times these people think they're the good guy. They think that they are sweet and that they are polite and courteous and so charming and so adorable and so um, victimized by this terrible world and all of these terrible people with terrible intentions when it's actually them. They're the ones that have, have wreaked havoc and just destroyed people's lives so that there's just this path of destruction behind them in the rear view mirror. And they just don't see it. I think they really, when they look in the mirror, that is not who they see. And it's important that you know that these particular types of mental illness, and some people will debate that, is this really a mental illness? Is a personality disorder a mental illness? And I say, yes, absolutely it is. Of course it is. 
because it impairs their ability to see reality. They are delusional. Um, they're neurotic. They have uh, psychotic breaks from reality. If that's not mental illness, I don't know what is. And they don't believe that there's anything wrong with them. And they think that if they're sweet and act nice, that they can kill you, murder you, but be really polite about it and tiptoe away and um, clean up after their mess and that it's all okay, that it's your fault. You made them do it. They didn't have another choice. And they somehow turn you into um, the bad guy that deserves whatever happened to you. And they just don't have any feelings at all. I mean, none when it comes to like real human emotion. So when people are objectified, like both male and female people are when they're abused or um, when they're children, they are treated as if they lack the moral status or intrinsic value that's associated with personhood with being a human. So it takes away their humanity. And I can almost guarantee you that in some way or another, almost every narcissist, sociopath, and psychopath has experienced that in some, to some degree, some kind of objectification where they were treated as a disposable object. And maybe, uh, most likely, that's what sort of programs their thinking their brain that that's okay that that's normal that that's how people treat each other it is a denial of their humanity when this happens you know and there's more this objectification and all of this is linked to violence and a lot of times it is the woman who is the victim the female and you know women and girls across the globe every 10 minutes somewhere in the world a female dies as a result of violence at the hands of a man. And even though this does happen to boys too, it's more common with females, way more common. The statistics uh, support that. And um, nearly one in four females is sexually abused at least sometime, at least once in their life. Females simply do not receive the same respect or value as their male counterpart. So in a relationship with a narcissist uh, or someone with a personality disorder, uh, this disproportionate treatment of women is amplified. It's amplified. And the families, friends, and community often play into that narrative. Everyone participates in the abuse, and the female victim is eviscerated and erased. Uh, eviscerated is sort of like back in the days of knights in shining armor, they would have swords, right? And when you have sword play, they're stabbing and slicing and eviscerated. It's when you rip someone from the nave to the chops. I've heard that in the Shakespearean plays, from the nave to the chops. And it means they're just opened up and they're gutted and all of their intestines just spill out onto the ground. It's a wonderful image. But that's sort of metaphorically what happens to women. And then they are erased. They are denied, and then they are erased. So the narcissist sees this target, not as a person, but as a means to an end. And I guess how this all ties together 
is that they are objectified, they are abused, they are treated in this very impersonal, non-human kind of way, and then they go on and do that same thing to their victim. Individuals with NPD are incapable of seeing other people as more than just paper dolls. They can be played with, moved about, um, briefly adored and used up, and then they throw them into the trash heap and get a newer, fresher toy. The very nature of their interpersonal limitations reinforces this dynamic. And the families involved will often doubt and blame and persecute and condemn the victims. Common things in the narcopath's parents, the common things that they'll often say after um, their son has burned your life to the ground, they'll say, boys will be boys. All of them want to stray. He just needs to find himself. And that's myth number one. And we're talking about the myths that people believe about what is a man, what it means to be a male, what the boys do, what is normal. It reminds me of that, that interview that where, where uh, Donald Trump was caught saying something in the locker room uh, that was very um, unsavory and vulgar. And I heard women uh, defend him and say, well, boys will be boys. Um, they all do that. All of them uh, want to cheat. All of them want to stray. All of them speak about women in a very vulgar and disrespectful way. And they just, you know, boys will be boys. <laughs> and that was just, that's always been such an appalling response. I'm thinking you're a female and that's okay. You're going to sanction this and, and give it your stamp of approval and just say, well, they're good boys. They just, you know, they got to be talking dirty sometimes. No, <laughs> they don't. And, and no, that's not, um, that's, how is that okay? And, and so that's a myth. That's myth number one. How, how about another one? Um, in my case, the narcopath was, he was younger than me. He, he was a chunk younger than me. Yeah, well, you know, my first husband was a chunk older than me. So if you average them together, they're close, almost come out the same. Um, but anyway, because he was younger, I was told that, you know, he had to go cat around because he was so young when we got married that he had never had time to sow his wild oats and that, that all men must sow. So the second myth is that men have to go out there and bed as many women as they can possibly uh, put, you know, put the little, little numbers on their bedpost, keep a little chart or something to show how many women, the conquests that they have had sexually and that that's something that men need to do before they settle down. If you are a male, families, our culture, the parents of these men, these young men will say, well, they got to sow their wild oats. They've got to get out there and um, cat around and, and sleep with a lot of women before they are mature enough and ready to settle down. But if you flipped that and said that about a woman and said, well, you know, she's only 20. She needs to go out there and cat around. 
um, and she needs to sow some wild oats, and she needs to sleep with as many men as she can possibly find just to get it out of her system, so she'll be ready to settle down and get married and make babies and be faithful for the rest of her life. She's got to sleep with a lot of men first, and that's just normal, and that's just how it is. Because that's how women are put together. Because <laughs> that's what they say about guys. That's how they're just made. They got to go do this. Ugh. It's a myth. And it's crazy. Why are women not allowed to do that too? All men need to whore around with multiple partners before settling down. But it's some kind of, like it's a prerequisite to to finally marry a good woman, you want to fool around with the whores uh, or <laughs> the ethically non-monogamous or the polyamorous or one of these people that is has very loose um, ethics when it comes to sexuality and very loose morals when it comes to um, fidelity and devotion to one person and even intimacy with one person. They're going to be intimate with lots of people. And so, um, yeah, think about that. That that sort of speaks to our society today. That's the world that we live in that uh, where, uh, you know, it's okay. So, you know, I'm a mother and I have uh, sons and, um, you know, they did the regular dating and everything uh, and followed by marriage soon after finishing college. They were young, early 20s, 22, I think. Uh, one son was 22, the other one um, around that age too. Years later, they're still happily married. They didn't wait till they were 30 or 40 or 50 to get married for the first time. They were really young. They were right out of college. And for a long time, that was just sort of how things were done. You you graduate from high school, you have your high school sweetheart, you go off to college for four years, y'all wait for each other, and then you get married and live happily ever after. And you've known each other since middle school. And that's a love story that's a classic that's like, oh, that's so sweet. But, you know, that's not considered too young. <laughs> so uh, you just can't have it both ways. Um you know, I, and there's more to that. Uh, my grandparents, they married at ages 16 and, and 18, and they lived together for nearly 50 years before my grandfather died. When um, my grandmother, after he passed, she was only in her late 50s, and she never like thought, oh, I've got to rush out there and replace him. I don't want to be by myself. And um she was circling 60 when that happened. That's pretty young by today's standards. Most people that age would find a replacement and remarry, but she didn't. You know, she was quite, you know, the frisky 60-year-old, and she was capable of snagging some old coot, but she didn't want to do this because that was the love of her life. That was her. She waited. She lived another 30 years after he died, and then, and then, that was that. And then another example is my own parents. They met um, in college at the Diamond Horseshoe Dance Hall. This was in Texas back in the late 50s, early 60s. And you know what? They got married six days later after they met each other. Six days later after they met. And they were together for the rest of their lives for like 45 more years. They were married before my dad died. Was it a great marriage? <laughs> Absolutely not. And that proves another point. 
they found ways to love each other and to care for each other as life partners in spite of their differences. These days, people don't do that. When you're married to somebody, if you hit, hit a bump, then you bail. Hit a bump and you bail. It's like, oh, well, this isn't working. We're not wanting the same things. You know, well, this isn't going to happen. And, and then they call it quits and find a replacement. I find that absolutely abhorrent. There's something really wrong with that. I think that when we partner and we pair up and we find that person that we want to commit to, um, it's for life. And if things get bumpy and rough and whatever happens, you know, I know a lady who she got cancer and she almost died and she was in chemo and she had to go through all this stuff and she lost both of her breasts, radical, um, complete mastectomy, like all the way down to the chest wall. And her husband left her. He just left and he said something like, well, this is too much for me. I didn't sign up for this. Well, I think you did. You know, when you marry somebody, you do sign up for that because isn't there something in there about sickness and health? Yeah. And when the going gets rough, you don't just get going, right? Isn't, isn't that part of it? When the going gets rough, that doesn't mean you get going. That means you find a way you negotiate you problem solve, you bend, you don't break, you bend with the other, for the other, you sacrifice, you do what you need to do, but you stand by them. You don't abandon them. You don't desert them in their time of need. I looked up statistics on this. And um, the weird thing is it said that um, when people get a sudden disability, like they have a heart attack and they become a cardiac invalid, or they suddenly, you know, fall off a horse and become a paraplegic or something like Christopher Reeve, remember him, Superman? Um, when those kinds of things happen, the divorce rate just goes off the chart. And there's more people that leave than stay. Think about that. Look at, look at the partner sitting next to you if you're married and think about that. More than half of those husbands or wives will abandon you if you become too problematic, too sick, or have something go wrong where you need help and you can't have the quality of life. You can't continue as you did before. They're going to they're gonna bail. They're going to say, um, yeah, okay, no. I'm that's no, I'm going to go do my own thing. Good luck to you. Um, hope you don't die. See you later. Ta-ta. Um, that's, that's, I, I don't think that's how life is supposed to go. When you make a commitment to somebody and you say, I love you unconditionally, no matter what, I got your back. I'm here for you forever and ever. Amen. When you say that to another person, you freaking do it. You do it no matter what. I know that I would, if I pledged that to my partner, I would crawl through glass, you know, in, in fiery pits of hell to be able to help them, to be there by their side for them. I would change their diapers. I would empty their colostomy bags. I would drive them to chemo. I would, I would do without sex the rest of my life if that's something that they couldn't do. I would find a way to mediate that. I would find some other solution to that problem. 
but I would not just say, wow, <laughs> I don't want to do this. Um, so yeah, good luck. I want a divorce. That's, that's, that to me is reprehensible. And I think that karma and <laughs> whatever else there is in the world that is justice is going to punish those people in some way. It's going to subtract something from them and their life for being such selfish, horrible people who could not stand by the people they promised to be there for in their time of need. They just leave them. I, I, I can't think of a more horrible person than somebody who does something like that. So all of these examples I just shared with you prove that, you know, the age differences in a marriage, they don't matter. The, the ability to be sick or healthy or whatever your condition is with your health, that shouldn't matter. Um, what you look like, let's say you get in a car wreck and you smash your face on the windshield and, and your whole face is scraped off and you look like a monster, you know, it shouldn't matter. That's, you know, since it's your husband, that's your wife, you love them even if they look like Quasimodo. You know, some of them looked like that to begin with and you loved them. So, you know, I uh, probably shouldn't have said that. All right. So what matters is your ability to genuinely love another person with all of your heart and soul as you become one flesh, one breath till death do you part. Not just pieces of yourself but all of yourself, you know, they, you know, you have to possess the moral strength to always put the other person first to remain steadfast and devoted and loyal in the face of any adversity that comes your way. That kind of union is beautiful and powerful. And that is love. That is a marriage. And that is love. That is a partnership worth having and fighting for. Now, the person with NPD or ASPD cannot understand any of that, any of, any of what I just described. They don't, they don't get it. They don't care. They don't want to get it. They don't want to care. Um, this complete surrender to love or unfaltering commitment to another human being, nope, no thanks. Can't, my brain doesn't work that way. I can't think that way. I don't even know what that is. I couldn't do it if I tried. I can only fake it. If you show me, I can kind of do what you do and mimic it. But as far as any genuine real feelings like that, nope, mm -mm, uh, not going to happen. So think about this. Even some animals are loyal to one mate for their whole life. They never replace them no matter what. Wolves, penguins, the bald eagle, even lobsters, they mate for life. So don't tell me it's against nature to be monogamous. You know, anything else is a selfish perversion that is more animal than human. Human have qualities that beasts can never possess. Yet for the disordered and the open relationship advocates, yeah, I'm talking to you too, guys. You don't want to hear it? Okay, uh, spit in my coffee. That's just how it is. Um, the truth hurts. You know, you rationalize decadent indulgence. That's what the narcissists and the people with ASPD do and the people who have all these uh, open swinging 
uh, kind of things, you know. It's not like, oh, they're both consensual adults, no harm, no foul. No, it's eroding our culture. All these women who are willing to cheat and sleep with married men, that's not a just like, oh, well, if that's their thing, just let their freak flag fly and let them just do their own thing. No, it's an erosion of our cultural values and it affects all of us. So it's not okay. It's not okay. They, this, they display moral deficits and they rationalize their choices with some kind of pseudoscience and new age psychobabble. You listen to, to a narcissist justify what they do. And, you know, <laughs> it's just, it's, it's not good. Society at large sends the message that women only serve a limited purpose with few personal freedoms or rights. And the narcissist, they're certainly ready to um, take advantage of that. It's, it's, it's like a cultural ideology, a collective consciousness kind of moral tone that's coming out these days. Is it too much to expect virtue and true love uh, with the man of your dreams, with a house and a white picket fence? The days of monogamy are now scoffed at as old-fashioned, antiquated, limiting beliefs. Why just have one when you can have as many as you want, whenever you want, where you want? The more the merrier, right? Let's just have a big orgy. One partner for life is simply not enough in our new world order <laughs> that we have. The cultural message is let go of what does not serve you. Do whatever makes you feel good. Be true to yourself. Embrace your freedom and let your true self come shining through. Whatever your identity is, just claim it and be proud of it because that's you and you're an individual and oh yes. And just because someone refuses to accept society's status quo regarding sexual self-expression does not necessarily make them perverted, pathological, antisocial, or aberrant. But, but for, um, you know, for those who are truly mentally impaired who are addicts or like sex addicts or disordered with personality disorders they have found a comfortable place to hang their hat this this is the roost where they come home to roost and so it's the perfect place for them there is now a place in society where they are accepted and it is sanctioned it is approved they are given permission to um to be that way this cultural shift to a consciousless, self-indulgent, amoral dynamic and relationship has spread like wildfire. What began as sexual identities um, that supported alternative lifestyles has grown into something else entirely. Most same-sex couples eventually settle with a partner after a period of experimentation and maybe, maybe a little promiscuity. The value of a stable relationship the intimacy and the security it provides and the joy of building a life with someone was never lost regardless of gender identification until now. Now these polyamorous pods and these ethical non-monogamous clusters are common and they're growing while traditional marriage and family are shrinking in numbers. 
This isn't progress, evolution, or better thinking. It's a corruption. It's a devolving. It is a loss of ethics and morals and decency. Sexual behaviors that include multiple partners can be commonly seen in various mental disorders such as psychosis, manic episodes, substance abuse, dissociative identity disorder, narcissistic and antisocial personalities, and it can often be part of the diagnosis of these pathological conditions. So yes, studies have proven this, that that sexual behaviors that include multiple partners are manifested in these kinds of mental illnesses. It's considered symptomatic of something that is is, uh, an illness. And people don't see it that way these days, but that's, it's in the books, guys. It's, it's been studied and, and that's what it says. The new opening up of sexual conventions provides a cozy place for sex addicts and people with other perversions or compulsions. What a perfect excuse to indulge their addiction to say, oh, I'm just choosing to have an open relationship. The cluster B characteristic of entitlement uh, is clearly in play here. And and that's a lot of times what it is. Um, That's who you're going to find so much of the time. uh, You're going to find that narcissist, that psychopath, that sociopath um, in those polyamorous and ethical non-monogamous relationships. Yeah. Or a sex addict or someone like that. So, the narcissist in this time of sexual ambiguity, yeah, he's having a good time. He's free to pick his targets for fuel, to assimilate their character traits, slurp up all of their delicious fuel, which is fuel is attention and adoration and affection and all that, and enjoy residual benefits like free rent or live-in housekeeping and meal prep. All of his needs are met. His fantasies are realized, and he only has to appear to be charming, sweet, and a little bit vulnerable in order to have multiple women scrambling to meet his needs. Yeah, that's how it is. In the end, the primary partner or one of the side girls, one of the side games gets sick or gets pregnant or gets a disease or whatever, then he's going to discard them and disappear before anybody can say, Ethical non-monogamy. Man, that's a mouthful, right? A healthy man would tell his wife that he was unhappy in the marriage, and there would be efforts to revive it, identify the problem, attempt negotiations, conduct discussions, and share emotional exchanges. The lack of viability in the marriage would gradually come into focus over a period of months or maybe even years. But since the narcissist never had any authentic feelings of love or intimacy to begin with, they can easily walk away and turn on a dime, never understanding why their wife seems to have so much trouble recovering when the rug is pulled out from under her feet. It's no big deal, right? Just go out there and get a new husband and have a lot of fun shopping around for him. That's what I'm going to do. That's what my husband said to me when he left. And out of the blue... They're gone without warning, vanished into thin air like the ghosts that they are. 
So things that you can do to raise a man who has empathy, conscience, and accountability. Yeah, if you have sons and they are growing up in a culture right now that approves of all kinds of, um, you know, weird things that are, um, you know, outside the parameters of what is moral and decent and virtuous and lacking fidelity and intimacy and true love. If you, if that bothers you and you're thinking, Oh my gosh, how can I uh, do this? How can I parent children in this time? Think about this. Sexual predation and exploitation have become minimized and normalized in this world. So even our presidents who lead the country, who set the moral tone, have been adulterers and womanizers for decades now. Not just this most recent one, but for decades they have been up to shenanigans doing things that were not okay. It's just been, you know, public figures have one scandal after another, and it is so commonplace that people have become desynthesized to infidelity and betrayal. You know, if Anthony Weiner can, 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 uh, you know, send a dick pic of his Weiner, you know, to people and, and it's just out there and you talk about it over dinner and ha ha ha, look at that guy. That's so funny. He got caught. Wow. You know, it's like everybody's saying it's no big deal. Everybody does it. Boys will be boys. Remember that from what I said earlier? If approximately 20% of married men engaged in consensual sex outside their marriage, that is the statistic, then that is not a signal to just jump on the hedonistic free-for-all bandwagon. But that's like what a lot of people say. They use that and say, well, if 20% of men cheat, that must mean that men aren't made to be monogamous. I don't think that's really what that means. No. But you can sure use it for ammunition if you have an agenda. Uh, you know, there's hope that somehow you can manage to find one of the 80% who still understand what being loyal and devoted to someone means and who believe that you're going to be enough. That when you get married, that one partner is enough. You know, because my question is, why, why wouldn't it be? Be enough, and if we send that message to our children that they're free to to not feel like that's enough, and we don't raise them with those traditional values that tell them that, why wouldn't they be treating people quite in quite an exploitative and disposable way um, as they get older? Um, so if all narcissists, or most of them, commit adultery, and you married a person who has NPD, then clearly you have picked a dud and you have a problem on your hands. This, this treatment of women all over the world is just abysmal. And life with a narcissistic partner is the alpha and the omega of objectification if you are a woman, because you're a non-person to him. And sexualization, there is no intimacy since you're just in a porn show, you know. They're just masturbating with a fantasy porn scenario and you're just uh, a prop. <laughs> it may not feel like that, 
but pay attention a little closer and you're going to see those cues. You're going to feel it. You're going to see it. If you let yourself, you can't just be blown away with how fantastic the whole uh, act, the physical act is look for the signs that they're just uh, performing a porn show there and you're in it. You're there. Um, whatever you call that. So there are several things parents can do uh, to, if you don't want to raise a narcissist. And let me tell you those, and then we're going to be finished for today's little talk. Um, first of all, set a good example. If you uh, picked a, a not okay person, <laughs> then do better the next time. And don't keep repeating the same dysfunctional pattern over and over while your children are watching. If you had more husbands than cars in your lifetime, it might be a good sign that you're teaching your child to be a narcissist by showing them how easily people can be cast aside and replaced and sending them the message that that's okay. It's okay because they malfunctioned in some way. They did not perform the way they needed to, so I had to get rid of them and replace them. Number two, do not abuse them. Do not traumatize them. Do not neglect them and do not abandon them. Do not shove them off on friends and family who will do those things to them. The damage happens early between, like, let's just go with ages four through eight. That's the most commonly stated numbers that I've seen. If the, if the ages between four and eight are the most critical, then you better be careful and be paying attention. Do your due diligence and watch what's happening to your kids. Know who's taking care of them if you can't. And, and make sure they are not abused, traumatized, neglected, or abandoned. Once they have been emotionally damaged beyond repair, nothing and no one will ever bring them back. Game over. Don't, don't, don't let that happen to your child. Number three, do not make excuses for them. Do not rationalize their bad behavior or defend their lack of morals or character. Oh, boys will be boys. They got to sow their oats before they settle down. Ah, phooey. That's just baloney, malarkey, ridiculous. You know, if, if doing that is only going to fuel the fire, and justify their actions that are really unjustifiable. You are an enabler and you are complicit in their future crimes if that is the message that you are sending them by defending them and rationalizing it by saying, boys will be boys. They just have to go out there and sleep around a whole lot before they settle down. No, <laughs> that's crazy. No, they don't. And if they do that, then women sure as heck should be able to do that too. Number four, teach them to feel other people's suffering, to be compassionate, to show mercy, to consider other people's feelings, and to be of service to others. Show them generous acts of selflessness and charity and start it at an early age. Demonstrate how to give without receiving. And, you know, in a way, you're teaching empathy, feeling other people's pain. Yeah, I think people are mean these days. They see homeless people and instead of saying, oh, they need help with their addiction and oh, 
they're they're mentally ill. They need treatment. They need medicine. Ah, there's animals that live better than this. Instead of feeling that and saying, oh, I, I bet they have no family. It is shameful how this is going with homeless. Instead of that, you drive by and say, look at those hobos pissing on the street. <laughs> they're just a bunch of scam artists. You know, they're just crooks trying to take our money. They need to get a job. There's no reason they can't. And then you just drive on. And really, that's the message that you want to send? Um, think about that. Think about how you talk about other people, how, what kind of empathy you show for other people's suffering. What if that was your son or your father or mother or brother or sister who had a mental illness or who had a drug addiction and ended up homeless? I bet that would change your tune, wouldn't it? I would hope it would. Maybe some people are so callous and hard-hearted that wouldn't even, they would still be judgmental about their own family member, but I sure hope that's not right. Number five, do not have a golden child favorite or a black sheep scapegoat or any unfair, unequal distribution of power among siblings. Show love and support in safe, healthy ways that are consistent, unconditional, and equal. Number six, install instill a belief in something greater and more powerful than themselves and teach them how to have a real relationship with that divine being or source or whatever. Most narcissists and psychopaths do not believe in God because they believe they are God and there's only room for one at the top. So instilling religious values in them is critically important. Number seven Teach them how to regulate their emotions, manage their frustrations, and control their dark impulses. Temptation can be resisted. Self-control is a necessary life skill. Virtue and goodness are qualities to chase. And there are consequences and a high price for always being motivated by self-interest. Mm-hmm. Number eight. Love them in a healthy way so they will know what it feels like and be capable of feeling it towards others and accepting it from others. Start at birth and love them no matter what they do so they will understand unconditional love. Model this also, this love, with other family members so you keep them. You don't throw them away like disposable pens. <laughs> Number nine. Teach them to self-reflect on their actions and own their mistakes. Help them understand that accountability is an important part of becoming a grown-up and a decent person and a kind person. And then number 10, accept the truth about your child so they can accept the truth about themselves. Demonstrate object constancy. That is something a narcissist does not have object constancy. You can love them, but not like what they do. You can love them and be angry with them. You can love them and be frustrated. You can love them and be disgusted and repulsed. You can love them and have other negative feelings because you're capable of doing both at the same time. They are not. They're only capable of, of being uh, idealizing you. I'm talking about the narcissist and uh, psychopath, they're capable of only idealization and thinking that you're just going to save them and be the best thing ever. Or 
they have contempt and they demonize you and they want to just erase you and make you go away because they have no use for you and they don't even want to think about you. It's like, I'm done with you. Why do you keep coming back? You're like that thing that doesn't flush all the way in the toilet. You know, let me just keep flushing it till you're gone. You know, there's women who have NPD and ASPD and I'm thinking that the dynamic is going to be similar for them too. My experience has been with a man. And so, um, you know, these men that I have known, they were the predator with the disordered mind, disordered mind who preyed on the women. So whether it was their mother, sister, lover, or wife, the story is the same. Women are already treated as second class citizens. So when a narcopath comes along, he can have his way with her and nobody thinks twice about it. You know, in the end, when she is kicked to the curb and torpedoed into oblivion, everyone will blame her and paint her as the unhinged one, not the real victim. They will deny her pain, bully her into compliance, walk away as if she's just too much being dramatic and defend the narcopath who is such a good boy. Boys will just be boys. They got to sow their wild oats. They can't be expected to always be faithful. Sometimes men stray. That's just how it is, right? Is that what they say? So women are alone in the fight to craft a life of wellness and power. They have to work harder than the man to achieve their freedom, to pursue their life, to have ownership of it. Not all good men are good and not all bad girls are bad. Um, that's something to think about. Some of these good guys are narcissists and psychopaths who consume their partner and then spit out the seeds. And the girls, the wild ones, the crazy ones, sometimes they are simply misunderstood. Sometimes they are just rising from the ashes of their lives and stepping into their power. That's it, folks. All right. Keep on trooping, troopers. Keep on marching. We're going to get to that place of healness, wholeness, all that stuff, all the misses. And it's going to be great. You just got to keep going. Keep your head up. Keep your eye on the prize. We're getting there. We're getting there every day. It's going to be okay. It really will be okay. Don't give up. All right. That's my little inspirational message for you for today. Sorry, this one was long. I had a lot to say about this stuff. Um, okay. Don't forget to my website. Check out my work. I have other little bits of wisdom, all of them firmly researched and rooted in truth. And, um, and, and then I've also sprinkled in a few little personal examples in there to kind of make it real, to keep it real. And that's what y'all all should do is keep it real. And I'll see you next time. Bye.